we are working our way through First Peter. Uh, we're just two weeks in now. This is the third Sunday, and as some of you have perhaps noticed by now, some of these passages are theologically dense. Uh, it's kind of like if you do any reading uh, of C.S. Lewis or, or Chesterton, where they manage to pack an awful lot of stuff in, in, in just a few words. Uh, and we could spend hours and multiple sermons trying to plumb the depths of everything that is in these texts. Uh, kind of like Revelation. You know, there was so much there, but we tried to make sure we, we focused on sticking with the plot, telling the story as we went through. That's, that's our approach with First Peter as well. But I will say that I think most of this text really would benefit from repeated readings and a little more personal study. So I would encourage you to dig in a little deeper on your own, especially if there are things that come up where you feel like we didn't quite get there, you have more questions, dig in, figure it out, then come back and ask us questions if, uh, if some of it is still unclear. Um, but it's, it's a little heavy. As I mentioned, uh, just the first 12 verses, Peter has discussed the work of the Trinity. Um, he's, he's talked about the impact and the power of the resurrection of Jesus and how the resurrection has provided for us any number of benefits, starting with salvation. Peter has reminded us of God's sovereignty uh, and the fact that his plan of redemption has been in place throughout human history. Uh, and of course, he's also introduced us to the reality and certainty of suffering and grief. And we're really, really thankful for that. <laughs> he, he tells us, he gives us the, the idea that suffering builds our faith and it should prompt us to joy. And this is all built on the, the original concept. He starts us off talking about elect exiles, the chosen of God, living in foreign and perhaps even hostile cultures. Uh, and as I was thinking through this again, because it, it'll continue to come up throughout the book, I think it's helpful for us to think about this, that this uh, idea of exile really works on, on two levels for us. I mean, as followers of Christ, we know that this world is not our forever home. It is our for now home. And our for now home is still very much in Satan's grip. And God is allowing Satan's limited run until he says enough. And so this world as we know it is tarnished by the cumulative effects of generations of sin and rebellion. So as exiles, we are going to experience all of the physical sorrows and griefs that are associated with living life in a predominantly sinful and rebellious culture. The, the, the physical effects of time and gravity, for example. We all feel that pretty much every day. But health issues and, and financial woes and relationship dramas and all the things that are part of all the, all the stuff of life as we know it, and no one is immune from its effects. But as part of the elect, we will also experience some sorrows and griefs that are uniquely associated with being followers of Christ. The culture, it turns out, may not love us. Satan and his cohorts will try to beat us down and distract us or divert us. And no believer will be immune from that either. For our faith to grow, apparently, we have to be tested. Regardless of what Joel Osteen or Benny Hill says about it. Benny Hill. Benny Hinn says about it. And we know now from studying Revelation that as bad as things may get, we're still called to persevere and endure. In fact, we're empowered to persevere and endure. And as Peter told us, the trials and sufferings are really testing the genuineness of our faith. 
It is shaping us. It's molding us. It's, it's building us up into more faithful followers of Christ. So Peter says, in those times, in those trials, when the fire gets really hot, remember that you've been born again to a living hope. Our perseverance will result in an inheritance that's being safeguarded by God himself. So while we suffer here, um, and Lenai and I were just talking about this yesterday, actually, the idea of perspective. While we're suffering here, we need to remember from God's perspective, this is just for a moment. Our suffering here is for a moment. Our joy there will be unending. And so we're called to, while we're here and suffering and building our faith, we're called to meditate on that joy, to keep that joy in mind. And not just for the future, but for now as well. It helps us now. Be continuously rejoicing. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And we say it, and we know it, and we believe it, but it just seems odd. I mean, just over the last few weeks, I know many of us are dealing with heavy life stuff. It feels odd a little bit for me to stand up here and say, well, you know what? As hard as life is, just be joyful. That's all you have to do. Just be joyful. How's that even possible? Well, it turns out that rejoicing through trials is an act of faith, and it's an act of will. We choose to rejoice in difficulty because it does not come naturally. It does not come easily. We choose to rejoice in difficulty. We choose to praise God in hardship. We choose to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when the fire is up and we're sweating bullets. And this testing is part of the life of faith. We deal with all this bad stuff now knowing that the good that's to come it far outweighs any of this. And there's still joy to be found here. There's joy to be found in the next life. Endless joy coming in the next life. And that's part of how we get through now. Trusting in God the Father who created us and Jesus the Son who died for us. That's where Peter has taken us through the first 12 verses or so and that's where we pick it up this week in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it starts with a therefore. We know what that means now, right? The therefore, it's, a, it's an obvious continuation of what has come before. It's building on all the things we just talked about. The blessings associated with salvation, the trials associated with a life of faith. Peter says, now that you have all of that understanding, those first 12 verses, with that understanding of how you've been blessed and how you've been called to suffer, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Now, the phrase, prepare your minds for action, I think, is, is good. It's helpful. It helps paint a picture for us, perhaps. But a literal translation would be something like, gird up the loins of your mind. Perhaps less helpful than prepare your mind for action. This would, gird up your minds would have made perfect sense in the first century church. Uh, and, and maybe this will help. In, 
in 1 Kings 18, there's a story about Elijah and a series of confrontations with Ahab. And 1845 says, after one of their encounters, Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Rode. So he's on a horse, he's in a chariot, he's on a, on a carriage, something. Ahab rode to Israel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment. Or technically, what that means is, he girded up his loins. And he ran and got there before Ahab. He gathered up his garment, girded up his loins. So he literally took the long robe that he was wearing and the, and the, the loincloth underneath, and he pulled it up and tucked it into his belt. And that freed up his mobility. It, it freed up the movement of his legs. It made him less encumbered, fleeter afoot, more agile. Although, without the hand of the Lord, it's unlikely he would have outrun a horse. But notice, notice that, that Elijah first had to prepare himself, and then the Lord came on him and had him outrun a horse. So in Peter's letter here, he says, prepare your mind for action or gird up the loins of your mind. It means you've got to get yourself ready. Get yourself mentally ready. Be prepared. Take whatever action is necessary for you to be able to handle whatever may come your way. Prepare yourself. That requires action on our part. How can we be more spiritually agile in our culture? Are we prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have? And if not, how can we get prepared? And then with the Lord's help, who knows what we might accomplish? Well, then Peter doubles down on the whole girding up your loins thing, and he says, be sober-minded. So I think clearly Peter's intent is to, he, he's appealing to our ability to think and to reason and to study and to learn and to know stuff. You know, sitting through a, a weekly church service and hearing a moderately good Bible-based sermon is good. It's a great start, but is it enough to gird up the loins of our mind? Should we be doing more to be prepared? Do we need to put in some extra effort personally to prepare our minds for action? You know, we've been talking about here in this church for years now, some of the observable changes changes we've, be, we've been seeing in our culture. You know, we, we have transitioned largely from the people who read to people who watch. From people who think and, and, and debate and discuss ideas and differences to people who emote and then demand compliance. We've transitioned from people who research to who, people who react rather than research. And Peter tells us in our cultural context, in their cultural context in the first century, we have to prepare our minds. We have to be ready for deal, to deal with all of this. So he's already calling us here without specifically saying it, you're gonna have to be a little different from your culture. These things are going to make you distinct from the culture that you live in. And if it was important and true for them now, I think it's even more important and more true for us now to be prepared. So as we, as we learn and we grow and we, and we deepen in our faith, then, Peter says, we learn to set our hope fully on the grace that was brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That seems to be an important part of the equation. The more we prepare, the more we study, the more we know about the things of God, the more we're able to set our hope on the grace brought to us when we met Jesus. And the better we understand grace, 
the more we appreciate it, the more we learn to rely on it, the more we're likely to share it with other people. And then, as a consequence of being prepared, as a consequence of being sober-minded, building and establishing our hope based on grace, our lives will begin to be transformed. What we truly believe on the inside must work its way out to the outside. So we ought not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. This is the first real sign of transformation that Peter mentions here. It's a change in our passions. I mean, this, this means at some point post-salvation, as, as we're learning to lean into grace, we come to realize that the things that we used to love, the things that we used to do, well, a lot of them anyway, pre-grace and pre-salvation, a lot of those things are likely not things we ought to keep doing. We probably all experience this to some degree. We come to realize that on the whole, our old passions and behaviors were distracting, at the very least. They were unhealthy for us, perhaps. Maybe they were outright unholy. So part of being prepared and sober-minded means putting away the sins of the past, putting away the behaviors of the past, and leaning into our new calling, which, as followers of Christ, means we move away from sin, we move towards holiness. That's the next step. If we claim to be followers of Christ and not just one-time sinner's prayer prayers, if we've made a commitment, committed our life to Christ, committed to Jesus as Lord, then we are called to be holy because the one who called us, the one who has chosen us, the one who has elected us, he is holy and he calls us to be like him. And then Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this is in the context of, of Leviticus, where the Lord is laying out the system of acceptable and unacceptable sacrifices to the Israelites. He's describing what is clean and unclean. And the big idea here was that the people would come to learn, they would figure out that any sacrifice they made before a holy God was less than perfect. They could not measure up on their own. But after Jesus became our great sacrifice for all sinners everywhere, when we accept his gift of grace, when we believe that he rose from the dead, we can be counted as holy, we can be accepted as holy, even though we're still working our way there. Holiness becomes our lifelong pursuit. That's part of living up to our calling. You remember in Romans, Paul said that we, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Now, what that looks like, at least in part, is we stop doing the things that offended God and we start doing the things that please God and honor him and glorify him. So Peter is really describing the, the literal meaning of repent. Your life was really geared all about you and pleasure and sin, and it means doing, repenting means doing a 180. It means changing things completely turning away from the life we were living, turning towards something better, turning away from our former passions, which were heavily sin-based, and turning towards holiness, at least making an effort towards holiness, an ongoing effort. So there's a change in how we conduct our lives. That's the word Peter uses, your conduct. And even through the grace of Jesus, 
Even though through the grace of Jesus we're counted as righteous and holy, it is still expected that we will do the work that actually moves us in that direction. We prepare our minds. We remain sober-minded. We keep our thoughts and our desires right. We put off the sinful behaviors of the past and our conduct, how we live, what people see in us and how we live, should increasingly reflect holiness. Next. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct again, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So after having just called us to repentance, Peter continues to expand on that argument. And, and really here, I think he's providing some, some motivation, some direction for us as to how we ought to pursue holiness. And he starts with, and if you call on him as father. So this is clearly aimed at the elect, right? He's writing to the church, those who have professed faith in Christ, the far-flung Christians throughout the, the dispersion. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now I think it's possible here that Peter is referencing or alluding to maybe two different kinds of judgment. He may have in mind the, the final judgment, you know, the, the white throne judgment we just talked about, where we're all going to be judged according to what we've done. It seems more likely that he's focused really on how we live our everyday lives. Be holy in your conduct today. I think that's the point he's making. Because by the time we get to the white throne, there's no chance for course correction there. We're done. Right? So, be holy in your conduct today and conduct yourselves with fear. So we should always be aware that our decisions, our behaviors, our attitudes will either glorify God the Father or they're going to disappoint and displease him somehow. So what he says is we ought to conduct our lives with fear throughout the time of our exile. And for most of us as Christians, our exile is the life we have here. This is not home. This is where we were exiled for now. Our home's in heaven. While we're on this planet, this is it. And so while we're here, we ought to live our lives in, in, in ways that show a reverent fear of the Lord. And that's the sense of the word fear here. It's this reverence. It's understanding that God is big. We are not. He gets to make the rules. We don't. So the connection here is that if we, if we claim to be Christians working towards holiness, then our faith, if it's genuine, will move us in the direction of holiness and our conduct will reflect it. How we live will be reflective of the holiness we're striving for. So if our behaviors and our lifestyles don't continually and progressively move us toward holiness, then we should expect the discipline of a loving father and a holy God. Because when we accepted the grace of salvation, we made a commitment. It's a covenant. 
We accepted Christ's forgiveness of our sins. We accepted life everlasting, and we committed to following Christ and becoming, becoming more like him. So if we consistently and persistently break our commitment, we should expect consequences. I mean, wasn't that the story of Israel throughout a good part of the Old Testament? God's going to discipline us as any loving father. Well, I was going to say as any loving father does, but as any loving father should. There should be consequences. You know, that, I, I couldn't help this made me think of the old... Uh, the old thing we used to talk about in school, you know, back in the days when principals could still punish students, um, and they talked about having the Board of Education up there, and they would apply the Board of Education to the seat of understanding, and that would correct lots of issues. Right? Bad behavior leads to consequences. So fear of offending God, fear of, of experiencing his disappointment, and fear of his discipline usually in the form of consequences for our behavior, living with a healthy, reverent fear of God, that's one motivation to call us to live faithful and holy lives. Fortunately, fear is not the only driver for us. Another significant driver, another significant motivator, and perhaps more consequential, is love. Peter says, knowing. So we know, we are to remember that we were ransomed from our futile ways. We are to remember that we were saved from our former passions. A price was paid for our salvation. Our sin debt was paid. And it wasn't gold or silver that bought us out. It was the precious blood of Christ. The lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter, now, just in this first few verses here, he's referenced both the resurrection of Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ as motivators for Christian living. And he alludes back here again to the Old Testament animal sacrifice system, that perfect spotless lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. So he's reminding us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. And then he reminds us, I mean, he says we know it, but he reminds us that God's death for our, our salvation was not plan B. You know, the Trinity wasn't sitting up there seven days in or three weeks into creation going, uh-oh, Adam and Eve just blew it. What are we going to do now? Before the foundation of the world, this was the plan. God the Father loves us so much that his plan included the death of his son. Before we were, the plan was. And Jesus the Son loved us so much that he willingly came to earth to die and to be raised from the dead so that we can reasonably and assuredly put our faith and our hope in God. So thus far, Peter's instructions to us, his, his argumentation for a life of faith and hope and holiness, it's all been pretty much vertical in nature. Everything he has laid out has been pretty much limited to the relationship between the believer and their God. Now, of course, it applies to a whole group of people. Jesus died for everybody, everyone willing to accept it. But faith is a personal issue. Hope is a personal concern. We all can share in it. We can all own a piece of it. But we are also all individually responsible for either accepting Jesus or rejecting him. 
And we're responsible after that then for how we live thereafter. So that this has all been about our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God. Now we start to get into a, a transition. It starts to, Peter's focus starts to change a little bit. Starting in the next few verses, Peter begins to narrow the scope of holy living from the, the group as a whole, the exiled believers. He starts to narrow his instructions down now to individual believers. And it made me wonder if, as, I mean, he's inspired by the Spirit, obviously, but as Peter's writing through this, thinking through this, it made me wonder if he had Jesus' own teaching in mind in this process. You may remember in Matthew 22, the Pharisees were after Jesus constantly. They were pretty sure they could catch him in a mistake, making some blasphemous comment or something or other, and so they hatched a plan. In Matthew 22, it says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they couldn't fool him, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So of course, rather than trapping him, he gave this great answer that left him pretty much speechless. But the point is, Jesus kind of laid out a pattern here that I think Peter's repeating. Our first priority, our first obligation is to love God. And to do it completely. Wholeheartedly, whole-mindedly, whole-souledly, is that the word? That's been the substance of all of Peter's teaching thus far. We love God because of his great mercy. Uh, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's prepared an inheritance for us. We've been the focus of his plan for history from the beginning. And that knowledge, now that we know that, he first loved us, he did all of this for us, that should cause us to love him in return honor him, to glorify him, to live for him. And that requires effort on our part. We have to be prepared. Prepared to learn and grow and prepared to share our faith and prepared to deal with discipline when we stay, when we stray, even prepared to suffer and to do that with joy. That's our relationship with God. And then Peter makes this shift here to the love your neighbor part. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So after we've committed our lives to faithful living, we're, we're moving towards holiness, trying to honor, honor and glorify God, then we add what apparently is this necessary component of brotherly love. It's almost like Peter's giving us a holiness soup recipe. You've got to start with the base of loving God the Father through obedience, and then you add this healthy dose of brotherly love. But he says it by starting with having purified your souls. Past tense. It reads as though we can now check that off our to-do list. We've now purified our souls. Right? Believe in Jesus. Check. Confess sin. Check. Repent. Check. Purify soul. Check. All right, then. We're good to go. Hello, holiness. We have arrived. It is extremely unlikely that that is Peter's intent because that just doesn't square with any of the rest of Scripture. 
I think what Peter's referring to is uh, where we are in our Christian journey. Where we're far enough along now where we understand that we're sinners by nature and by choice. We understand that we've come to a saving faith in Christ. We've committed our lives to holiness, or really increasing holiness. So this purified your soul comment is really just kind of a nod to the fact that we're on the right path. Now that you understand this is part of the process, you've made this commitment, you've made it this far, but you'll notice even our commitment to holiness and purification of our soul remains tied to acts of obedience. We have to continue to do these things. We have to continue to obey. It's ongoing obedience. So this is not a, all right, you've arrived, you're pure and holy. Again, salvation is not just a one-time prayer, it's an ongoing lifestyle. And our purity of soul is tied to ongoing faithful obedience. And it turns out that part of ongoing faithful obedience is tied to how we love people. A genuine faith, a true faith, a true love of Christ on the inside must necessarily work its way out to the outside and a genuine love for Christ will result in an earnest love for one another. <sighs> Apparently how we treat people, how we love people, it's a sign, it's an indication of the purity of our heart. I mean, this is an easy thing for us to read. It's an easy thing for me to say. No one's really going to take offense to this. Hey, we're supposed to love people. Great. But living it out? Man, people are hard. We often have joked over the years that one of the challenges of, of owning a business that's open to the public is the public tends to come in. People can be hard. And in this instance, Peter is encouraging us to a sincere brotherly love. So his scope, I think, is a little more specific than what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Peter says, love our brothers first. It needs to start there. Now, there's some minor disagreement about this. Most scholars believe and agree that Peter's referring to this special connection, you know, this special relationship between fellow believers. Some translations even say the love of the brethren uh, or love your brothers. But the intent seems to be we're supposed to love all of those united together in Christian fellowship. It starts in the house of God. And really for no other reason than we can see other than we worship the same God. We're committed to the same Jesus. So let's love everybody. That makes us a spiritual forever family. So we're to love each other from an earnest and pure heart. It does not mean we're going to see eye, on, eye to eye on everything. Or even that we should. But loving with a pure heart allows us to live and love in a way that encourages and builds one another up. We are building up the church. We're going we're to look at this in the next couple of sections. We're the living stones of this church that's being built, this body that's being built. So rather than finding ways to divide and fracture the, the body, we're supposed to love one another. And it's not always easy. I mean, you may remember again in Matthew, Jesus laid out a whole teaching about brothers, spiritual family members, and how they're to go about dealing with problems. Because it's not as easy as it sounds like it ought to be. 
if you come to an impasse, here's how this is supposed to work. Even egregious sins committed against one another, the process is laid out in Matthew 18. It's pretty simple. It's very personal. Go to somebody that you're having a problem with and try to work it out. Just the two of you. Go directly to them. Don't get everybody else in church involved. Don't create division. Don't badmouth. Don't talk about people. Don't question motives. Talk to the other party. Two believers who are genuinely trying to live lives of holiness ought to be able to sort out their problems. Now, the truth is, because we are, you know, stiff-necked and hard-headed, there's also this caveat in Matthew 18 that says, well, you may need to get one or two other people involved to help mediate the situation. It may take just a few more people to work it out. But if we're loving our brothers earnestly with a sincere heart, we should be able to love each other in a familial kind of way. We all have family members that are hard to love too. And truth be told, some of us are just better at this than others of us. Some people are just harder to love. Some people struggle with forgiveness. Some people struggle with being forgiven. All of this brotherly love takes effort. It takes commitment. It takes obedience to follow through. And I think part of the challenge is, I think, I think why Peter calls us to this first is, if we can't love our fellow believers with whom we're going to share eternity, with whom we share belief in the risen Christ, how can we begin to love the lost with whom we may have nothing in common? So the call to love one another in the church is preparation and it's practice for how we are to love those outside the church. Paul reminds us to love the brethren and to keep practicing that. It is ongoing. And then we'll get to the Jesus part about loving our neighbors, everybody else. Keep practicing brotherly love. And sometimes, even in the church, we get a lot of practice. We probably all know or have known that one guy or that one woman, you know, they're just the eternally grumpy, self-professed Christian who's the most sad sack, sourpuss, gloomy gus, chicken little, sky is falling, woe is me, Eeyore Christian we've ever met in our life. I had your name crossed out. I wasn't going to say it. I mean, they may be so unpleasant as to actually make us consider at some point whether or not they know the joy of salvation at all. Are they even a true believer? I mean, if our outward self is supposed to reflect our inner self, and according to this text it should, then what does this say about their inner self, their life of faith? They can, they're just hard to love. And yet, apparently, if they claim to be part of the body of Christ, we're called to love them anyway. And we can't know what's going on the inside of everybody. We don't know what they're struggling with and what their, what their issues are, but we're called to love them as a brother or sister in Christ anyway, even if it's not reciprocated. And it's just not easy. But we're called to love with a pure heart because we have been born again. Because our joy and our salvation trumps their grump. Joy trumps grump. 
and our joy and our, and our salvation should be ongoing and eternal because of our status of being born again. Our status of being born again is ongoing and eternal. To drive that point home, Peter quotes from Isaiah 40 here. Again, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I mean, I think a pretty simple paraphrase here might be, we're going to die. I mean, physically, anyway, we're going to die. All flesh is like grass. It blooms in its season, and then it dies. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Which means it's, its teachings, its principles, its precepts, all going to endure forever as well. What it calls us to do goes on forever as well. So as followers of Christ... We will always strive for holiness until we're called home. And then I think it'll just come naturally. As long as we're exiled here, we are called to strive for holiness. There are no exceptions. We're always expected to work at preparing our minds. We're always expected to continue working to purify our souls. And we're supposed to continue loving our brothers because nothing on earth can undo the love of God for his children. It will go on forever. Nothing can undo or negate the effects of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're called to live out our faith in a God-pleasing way until we stand for, before him to get our final report card. Even Satan's not able to steal our joy unless we let him. You know, we actually fend him off by following Jesus better. Preparing our minds for action. Loving our brothers. That's how the process of holiness starts. Peter starts with these really kind of general big ideas because it's kind of hard. It's, it, it, it's challenging to wrap our minds around all of this. Wrap our hearts around it. Adopt the principles. And that's why he keeps going back to we have to rely on our faith. We have to choose joy. We have to choose to rejoice in our salvation. Living with these ideals can be difficult. It can be challenging to live with the joy of salvation and the joy of suffering. Those seem opposite. But we chose salvation, we can choose joy through suffering also. It can be difficult to do, but the real world can be difficulter. And this is the best option that we have. Putting our hope and our faith in God. Putting our hope and our faith in Jesus who died for our sins and raised from the dead to prove he could save us. So as we prepare for communion this morning. I think there's several things here this morning for us to think about. Uh, we have both the death and resurrection of Jesus mentioned in this text, but I really kind of want us to focus on our part of the process today, because we, we're also called to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. So we're going to take a few minutes here to, to allow time for personal reflection, to ask ourselves some questions. Things I think we can meditate on while we're, while we're praying and preparing our, our hearts and minds for 
communion? Is, is my mind prepared for action? Am I doing all that I can do to live a life of holiness? Is that even a goal? Am I still hanging on to former passions that I should have probably let go a while back? Am I practicing sincere brotherly love? Or am I looking for fault? Am I extending grace to others? Even as grace has been extended to me? Now my guess is we all have one or two areas here that could probably use just a little bolster, a little kick. A little work. Once you've identified those areas, and maybe there are others that come to mind, areas where you're struggling, then I want us just to spend a few minutes here in, in quiet prayer, confessing, repenting. And after a few minutes, the music will start playing. We'll, we'll pass out the elements um, and just hang on to them, and then we'll join in communion together. Father God, we are grateful for the, the challenge that's laid out in the text before us today. Um, we understand that it, it, that it is what you've called us to, but we, we also know that it's difficult sometimes to, to do it completely and, and even earnestly. These may be desires of our heart, but when it comes down to, you know, the rubber meeting the road, these can be hard things to do. And so I ask you to continue to, to build us up in our faith, and we know even now that sometimes that means more challenges. Sometimes that means trials to build our faith. But Lord, I pray that even as you give us those challenges and those trials, we know that, that you have given us a spirit that will help us endure and persevere and overcome as well. So Lord, help us search our hearts, search our minds this morning in these areas that we are called to in ways that we're supposed to live out our faith. And if there are areas where we may be lacking, if there are areas where we just need to, to, to build up, uh, Lord, I pray that you make those clear to us. Give us wisdom to know where our struggle lies Give us wisdom to know how to, how to tackle those areas and how to continue to build up our faith. We thank you for your love for us. We, we thank you for the call to love the brother, the brethren. And then we thank you for the call to love our neighbors outside of that. But help, help us start here first. Help us practice all of those things here so that we're better prepared to deal with the world around us that sorely needs to hear about the good news.